Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. G'day, and welcome to our very first episode of Ask Policy Forum, our special new pod series where you get to ask all of the questions, from the serious to the seriously funny. Ask Policy Forum is a special crossover pod for listeners of Democracy Sausage Policy Forum pod and my podcast, the National Security Podcast. I am Chris Farnham. G'day. We wanted to do this special pod because each month we receive a lot of questions and comments from subscribers that we don't always get the time to cover on the podcasts, or they even come through after we've aired the podcast and we don't always get the chance to ask them. So this is the new pod series where we want to give these questions a home and a platform where we can chat to each other. So every four weeks, uh, we'll invite a panel of experts and a presenter from each of our big three pods, Policy Forum, uh, Democracy Sausage and NatSec Pod, uh, to join us at the members bar here at the Policy Forum compound to have a crack at these questions. Uh, This episode will be available to all of you, uh, but if you want to keep listening to Ask Policy Forum after this episode, uh, join us on Facebook, just type in Policy Forum Pod and join the pod squad. So after today's kickoff episode, Ask Policy Forum will only be available to you if you are a member of the Facebook group, so don't forget to join. Now, it's been quite the start to the year here in Australia, a summer apocalypse, if you will, starting with the bushfire crisis, followed by a massive hailstorm. And yes, my car did get written off in that hailstorm. Then we had, we still have extensive flooding across the country. There's the global health emergency due to the coronavirus and the inevitable political shitstorm that follows on from any of these types of events. 2020 hasn't been what most of us had wished for, to be honest. Uh, Concerns about climate change and the lack of an appropriate national strategy to respond to it in Australia are ever more pressing, which your questions to us have illustrated in stark relief. So that's where we're going to take on today's discussion in two parts. So let me tell you who we've got on the panel here today. We have Professor Mark Howden. He is the director of the ANU Climate Change Institute and vice chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and a member of the Australian National Climate Science Advisory Committee. We have Associate Professor Carolyn Hendricks, Associate Professor at Crawford School, member of the New Democracy Foundation's Research Committee, and she sits on the editorial board of several international journals, including the European Journal of Political Research. We also have Dr. Anna Greta Hunter. Uh, she is a clinical senior lecturer at the ANU Medical School and staff specialist at the Canberra Hospital. 
We have Mr. Mark Kenny, former Chief Political Correspondent and National Affairs Editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and the Canberra Times. Mark is also a Senior Fellow at the ANU Australian Studies Institute and the presenter of the Democracy Sausage podcast. And we have Martin Pierce, editor of PolicyForum.net, presenter of the Policy Forum pod, and Crystal Palace Tragic. That is me. Thank you so much for joining us today, everyone. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so our first question clearly comes from a soccer fan. If climate change mitigation was measured on a football league table, where would countries sit on the ladder? Which countries would be challenging for the title and who would be battling relegation? Look, it's probably the Scandinavian countries uh, on on the top of the um, table. Uh, So they're they're not only doing it in a way that uh, generates really good livelihoods uh, with low greenhouse gas emissions, they're doing it in style. So that's top points for them. In terms of the ones on the bottom of the table, uh, probably it's the oil-producing countries, particularly those in the Middle East. So per capita, they're the highest emitters across the globe. Uh, so they're right down the bottom of the table. Is that because – can I ask you about that? Is that because they uh, the oil is refined there? Yeah, so there's uh, fugitive emissions right. uh, coming from the oil. Yeah, so right. So it doesn't. It's not because they produce oil, which goes on to produce a, a huge amount of greenhouse gas, which is counted against wherever it's burnt, right? No, that's right. So this is what's burnt or used domestically. Yeah, and right. So so they've got economies which are very dependent on the oil that they produce. So, yeah, right. Um, so they actually, you know, generate electricity from the oil. They generate the water from the oil through desalination, etc. So you know, highly uh, emission intensive economies. It's a really fraught area, this though, isn't it? Because I mean, that question alone is interesting from Australia's point of view because we have what one point three percent of emissions, uh, global emissions, which the government likes to say therefore means we not much we need to do because we can't really influence the rest of the world, which I say is complete bollocks. But it, but the point is there are some people who say we should be counted for what we for the greenhouse emissions we are responsible for, not just those we produce, but which arise from the coal we export and other natural gas and other things, which takes us up into the I think the mid three percents uh you know, which is significantly greater of course, sort of triples the number nearly. What do you think about that? There's different ways you can calculate this and uh and Look, looking at uh, how you calculate them at the moment, it's the greenhouse gas emissions which are produced within the bounds of the country. Uh, and the exceptions for that are air fuels and marine fuels, which are called bunker fuels, and they're actually dealt with differently. They're an international, uh, you know, non-country uh, greenhouse gas emission. <clears throat> you could do it the way you've talked about, but all of a sudden you have to actually track all of the greenhouse gas emissions and effectively do a life cycle analysis for each of those uh, emission sources, uh, sheeting it back to the area where it's produced, whereas the principle under which the inventories are currently dealt with is that it's actually the responsibility of the user, the end user, Mm. who benefits from the consumption of that product. And from a policy point of view, you can see an alignment with good policy and with the the good practice of um, inventories. I I see in the news today that BP has made an announcement that they are aiming to be carbon neutral by 2050. Do you think that they're going to be an outlier within the industry or do you think that we're going to see a trend of some of these carbon intensive industries or industries that feed the carbon cycle are going to look to shift where they're going in the future, at least shift the public perception around their image? 
I can't comment in detail about BP, but um, I think a lot of companies are starting to look at their business model and figure out where they can actually make changes. And so, um, so we had a, a big announcement from Microsoft just a week or so ago, which was not only that they were going to go uh, carbon neutral, but they're actually going to offset all of the emissions produced through the whole lifetime of the company. Um, and so that's far more ambitious than, than BP, but then they're not a fossil fuel, uh, you know, you know, dependent company. You know, which you know generates its main income through fossil fuels. I mean, BP have been lining up to sort of shift at least their public perception um, for a long time now. They they saw the writing on the wall in terms of uh, movements to renewables a long time ago, and for a while at least they were a producer of things like solar panels, and so uh, you know branching out into renewables. I'm really interested in the politics of this because it's like the politics of that particular um, trend because. It strikes me it's pretty obvious really when you look at it that this is a much more kind of pressing front of mind issue in Europe and in Britain. You know, we see even the Tory government there moving towards um, uh, phasing out petrol, you know, internal combustion engines in new cars earlier than they even intended and, uh, you know, going and they're of course having whole periods of time where they're not generating any fuel, any, any electricity, I should say, from, from coal. Um, and this is in England, you know, amazingly. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a more front of mind issue for, uh, for, for Europe and Britain and the BP is obviously domiciled there. Uh, is that, is that a factor here? I, I think companies look towards their markets for yeah. um, signals and acceptability of, of how they're positioning themselves. So that does come into play there. Um, but then, you know, there's other European companies, uh, more European based companies like Shell, which have taken similar stances. Uh, and, and what you're saying rings true a little bit because if you look at companies located in different places like the US or in, uh, the Middle East yeah. and, and they're positioning themselves quite differently at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, they're more conservative. They're they're sort of hedging their bets, and you don't see that kind of what what this government refers to as kind of corporate activism. So I don't understand soccer particularly, but if you're thinking about this, putting the Scandinavian countries at the top of the league, and you're putting you know the oil intensive countries at the bottom, um, and Australia is not going to be much above that potentially. Are there different grades of soccer? First grade, Premier League. Yeah, these, these you, you drop down into lower me. leagues, though. Yeah. So, which what league are we in? Are we are we in the top? Are we playing Premier League in terms of the the approach that we're taking internationally? Do you think we can 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 hope for better even at the top? Okay, I think as well as as different um, levels, um, there's different age groups, and I think we need to think about the different <laughs> age groups that we're we're dealing with here. Yeah. Can I just say it's very exciting that we're having a conversation about relegation, and it's not involving Crystal Palace. <laughs> that is a personal highlight for me. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next question. We've got two that are quite similar, so we'll we'll read them both out. One comes from uh, Kevin Dore from Facebook, and the next one comes from Haley Carswell. First question is uh, from Kevin. In central Queensland, where I live, our economy benefits significantly from jobs in the coal industry. I don't know of any other industry that can pay wages similar to these. I suspect the transition, when it happens, will significantly impact our local economies. We are still recovering from the last downturn, and consequently, that will be a major challenge to policymakers and governments. How can such effects be mitigated against? Haley has written in saying that she is curious as to the panel's opinion on what role policy should or can play in the retraining or upskilling of workers who stand to be impacted by a move away from the 
fossil fuels industry. Can I take that just first? I'm sure everyone's got a view on it, but I, I think those questions are really good. Uh, and the second one kind of really goes to an implicit question sort of contained within the first one, which is that there's this transition going on, this transition will happen, and how's that going to be managed? And I think it's really an interesting question because politics is really struggling with this at the moment. We saw, uh, we heard uh, just overnight at the time, as we go, you know, to this recording, just overnight there was this uh, news of this thing called the Otis Group, a group of, um, you know, 20 or more Labor MPs, including several front benches, who were meeting in a, in a place called the Otis Restaurant in Canberra uh, recently, uh, and they described themselves as pro-coal MPs or MPs that are interested in the interests of coal workers. Uh, we know, of course, uh, the coalition is all over the place on this. The, the Nats are tearing themselves apart. The Queensland Nats are uh, stridently pro-cold. They don't think Michael McCormack is sufficiently tough on this. You know, so it's really uh, a big tension point within the major political parties. Um, and, of course, McCormack could fall on the basis of that. That makes it very hard for Scott Morrison. I think a bit later we might be talking about whether they can actually, whether the government will actually do anything substantive on coal. But it's a really fascinating kind of um, political challenge, this question of, of coal. And it seems to me that the, um, the thing that isn't being talked about and that needs to be talked about, and it's implicit in both of these questions, is what do you do with the people who in good faith and absolutely legitimately derive their uh, their their int- you know their income their their communities uh, their towns everything about them is associated with this sector what do you do about it how do you actually transition away from it it's all very well for people in the cities to be talking about clean green future but if you've got whole towns whole regions that are dependent on this industry you need to have an answer to that question. If there's one lesson that we saw from the 90s and from Paul Keating's, you know, talk about the uh, the big picture and security in Asia rather than from Asia and all of that sort of stuff, it's that if you're going to talk about big transitions, t- taking off tariffs and everything else, you have to have an answer for how those people who are powerless in the process, people I say are caught in the sort of hinge of the of the change. You have to have an answer for that. And I reckon that's where politics is failing at the moment. One of the things I've seen suggested is that instead of using surpluses for um, the sorts of things we see them used for, mainly for political purposes, but also for, um, you know, stimulus from time to time and so forth, that we ought to uh, be spending money on directly compensating the losers from the transition that we ought to do a fairly rapid transition from the you know the the, the sort of fossil fuel based uh, exports that we have and that in the process of that we ought to literally be buying people's houses from them because they will be worth nothing if they if you take the coal industry away from some of those towns uh, that we be retraining and all that sort of stuff so I think there's really big challenges here and those are really great questions that go to that. Anna Greta, I see that you're writing some things down furiously. How is the best way to approach not forming the new people that history leaves behind, the the new Luddites, so to speak? Look, it's a parallel example. And so I spent this morning um, at Parliament House at a breakfast that was talking about issues to do with regional and rural health um, and really highlighting that interrelationship between the changing climate and the challenges that are faced in large tracts of Australia uh, around devastating drought and or floods, 
And so it's not just coal. When we look at what's happening in regional Australia or rural Australia, there are tremendous transitions taking place all over the nation. There, one of the uh, my colleagues over breakfast uh, was referring to parts of northern New South Wales where the viability of townships has been changed by changes in a work environment. So you might, you know, get online to speak to a lawyer in Sydney rather than have your local lawyer there. Yeah. You might get online to talk to your psychologist rather than having a psychologist there. You might be integrated into tech technology, which really means that the population density required in your town is seriously undermined. And so, you know, the, the viability of agri agricultural industry is also up for discussion. It's up for discussion in the context of our changing climate and some of the, the data that we're looking at in terms of changes in temperature and rainfall uh, give pause to the long-term viability of townships that are reliant on the agricultural industry. So I don't think this is just simply about coal, and I think we can easily see the parallels into the other areas. Something you were talking about, Mark, using the surplus, and again thinking about extreme. Not that there is one no, left, no, no, there is. Yeah, yeah, of course, we've had to send, spend it on a crisis, uh, and we're you know that which is been, not climate unrelated, which is not at all unrelated to climate change, and so we're really we're reactive, aren't we? We're constantly reacting. We've got a crisis model of let's give money to funding for drought, let's give money to funding to to uh, yep. for, for agricultural support. Uh, we could we could do better, couldn't we? We could really do better in planning transitions for communities. And, well, maybe and that's what Morrison, to be fair to him, maybe that's, there, there is some merit in what Morrison's saying in that regard, that it, let's spend money on adaptation, let's spend money on resilience building, and presumably that, you know... I haven't seen what it looks like. And I think mm. in practice, part of what we're really missing is bringing, you know, a multitude of different voices to a table yeah. to plan that. And that's what the, these people in, in uh, central Queensland really need, don't they? They need, they need people from all different aspects of government to come forward and give a plan. Is there, is there a viable alternative employment model? Is there a way in which to keep the town alive? And that's just as relevant in the agricultural industry, yeah. in towns which are running out of water, in towns which are faced by devastating drought, drought and, and or fire and or fire flood, uh, these are conversations that need to take place uh, across the country. And, and, yeah, look, and I, I absolutely on. agree, um, Anna Greta. I think, I think there's a, um, a sense that, that we need to help these communities, but actually they, they know what they need, actually. And <laughs> yes. so I think that the task here for all levels of government is to think about how can we, how can we help these communities, whether they're rural, like remote rural or, or large regional centres, how can we help them achieve their visions? Because they all have them. And they all have needs and they all have visions and I think they've le felt left behind and I think that's that's why you see a lot of rising community independence coming through at the state government in, in local government. There's a lot of independence sitting on, on local councils now. There's Helen Haynes. There's independence in, in the federal parliament. I mean, these, these are the new voices of rural and regional Australia and, and the things that they're standing on that are getting them elected are voice, um, are opportunity, education, Climate change, health. I mean, these are what, what matter to people's, um, lives. And I think Australia could be a lot, a lot better at trying to work closer with these communities. Wanted just to t tap in also to something that Mark said about that table we had before. Cause I think the, the Netherlands sits in there somewhere, possibly under the Scandinavian countries, but I, I spent quite a lot of time in there in the kind of 2009 period. And, and, you know, they, they were talking about, Transitions, the word transition management actually comes from that sort of policy context. And they have the administration and researchers from all different disciplines, history, health, politics, coming together, trying to really wrestle with transitions in health, environment, energy. 
these are the kinds of big projects that Australia needs to start doing with their communities. It's not reactive. It's very forward-looking. Um, and they're asking questions about the next 100 years. Mm. You know, that that's the sort of policy thinking, I reckon, we need to push along here. So we don't, st- don't we, sorry, just don't we need a bit of also a bit of honesty, like, with these communities? Rather than sort of, uh, you know, fighting this, you know, this ideological fight to sort of defend the status quo, aren't we just sort of taking them further and further down a dead-end road where eventually they, you know, they go off a cliff rather than have the proper policy development, consultation and staged transition to a new future that could be expected. I mean, the, the, the guts is falling out of the coal industry all over the world and that is not looking like it's going to change. I'd be very surprised, be very surprised if there's any suggestion from, you know, I mean, just follow the money. No one's investing in it really. Well, I mean, like the, the questioner, Kevin, even stated in his question when the transition happens. Yeah, absolutely. So he, it's implied yeah. in the question. that I mean, the that's people right. in these industries, so, are, they see the writing on the wall and so that's the why they're So the are betraying their own bloody communities. By, by fighting the fight as if they can, you know, King Canute style sort of hold back the tide. I mean, I think the, Na- the National Party is completely divided around these issues when it comes to rural Australia. I mean, you just look at the coal seam gas both side, debate. Divided and both sides are wrong. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but in, internally within the, the National Party, there are communities that are right at the coalface of all, excuse the pun, of all the, you know, effects of climate change and they and the MPs that represent them understand that they need action. Mm. They don't want to invest further in a coal seam gas, for example, future. They want to, to imagine something else. They want an agricultural future, et cetera. And there are others that don't have those kinds of perspectives in their electorate. And so I think as a party, both at the state and the federal level, national level, then they're, they're, they're not very united around any of these. They, they appear it. But I would say that there's a lot of divisions. Honestly, I reckon their best bet is to organise within themselves to become a marginal electorate and then apply for grants. <laughs> That's where they're going to get the money they, from. They haven't done yeah. so badly on grants, actually, <laughs> yeah. now that I think about it. So, Mark, did you, before we move on to the next question, did you want to have an input on this? Uh, look, I, I think some really good points made so far. Um, I'd I just add to this uh, that – even though a lot of people have attachment to place and attachment to the sort of job that they do, um, it doesn't mean you can't have a really, really good future um, living somewhere else and doing something else. And and so this idea that uh, because I'm a coal industry person, I can only be a coal industry person, and 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 that's my lot in life, is just not true. Is that we have you know lots of opportunities and policies which open up that opportunity space are really important. Um, and it goes to um, similarly to attachment to place is that, uh, you know, if you ask most people, are you happy living where you are? You know, do you want to move? Um, or I want you to move and you'll get a lot of resistance. Um, uh, and so, so people say, no, no, I'm, I, you know, I want to live where I am. But, but when you actually look at the stats is that most people move or, you know, sell houses every seventh year, you know, so, so in fact that, on average, we do move and we do move quite quick, you know, you know, frequently, um, across the place. And so, um, the idea that, um, just because I live in a house now is the only house that I can ever live in is, is a, is a ridiculous proposition. And, and likewise, we should be thinking about it in a broader sense. Um, the challenge, of course, is doing this in an equitable way and where, where people have in good faith actually um, position themselves and their families in a way that then can be disadvantaged uh, because of factors outside of their control. And 
And it's not about opening up the policy space for this to happen in every context, um, but it's where um, there are particular responsibilities for government to do this in an effective way. Yeah, and just going back to something you were saying before, the the world and the way we have careers is changing as well. In our grandparents' generation, they largely worked for one company in one industry in one career for their whole life. Our parents' generation usually worked in the in the one career, but worked for three or four different companies. In our generation now and the younger generation, people are having two or three different careers and are lucky to stay with the one company for more than five years. We might all have to get new careers after this podcast, for example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a flash in the pan for me, I tell you. All right, and let's, there, let's, I mean, there are towns with biological limitation. We're going, you know, towns have run out of water or it gets too hot. And we, we haven't started those conversations. They're really difficult. And so, you know, we can we can spend a lot of time debating how to shut down a coal mine and we've got, we've got the, the luxury of time to really facilitate that in a way that does protect uh, the, the people involved whereas you're into towns where they run out of are out of water how long do we truck water in for how long can we expect people to live when the temperature gets to 50 degrees and hotter um, and isn't, we, isn't we can't the, have those convert. We ha- I haven't heard any detailed discussion around that. Particularly on indigenous, to- indigenous populations. I mean, they they yes. are potentially the, you know the, the the internal refugees, climate refugees of Australia. Absolutely. I mean, there are many communities. We heard yesterday at the um, ANU Climate Summit uh, from from one of the speakers about hearing in, in Adelaide from some communities where where it is too too hot to to, to go on to country and and practice their traditional practices. Um, you know, these are conversations we we just ex- sort of have pushed them out to these these marginal lands, and mm. these lands are becoming even less inhabitable. Um, and and what what what's our responsibility to that kind of community? I mean, if if we didn't get the rains we've got now, I think Canberra was about to get a bunch of regional uh, migrants from Bungendore and Braidwood. I mean, like yeah. there was no. I mean, this is this right is here. this is it's not it's not a conceptual risk. It's an actual risk, and it's something that that hopefully maybe we won't we won't see again for a month or two or a year or two, but these these are well-documented risks that have already taken place and that will continue. Um, you know, the regional variation in heat and looking at the sort of temperatures that have been already expo- exposed in the Northern Territory particularly, you know, we need to start having serious conversations about how to make those places safe and or how to assist people in the relocation in a way that maintains their relationship to country because it does seem to disproportionately affect an Indigenous population. The, the, the other thing is that's interesting is that there's a kind of an inverse political relationship with the facts here that the people who are most affected and most vulnerable to this climate change are not the ones who are you know uh, stressing the urgency of the transformation and i know it's easy for people in the city to just say well that coal mine should be closed down it's easy for people in the city to say that because they're not deriving their income directly for, from it and and their local economy isn't based around it and so forth so that's that is a legitimate sort of political gripe within the within the whole debate. But I mean, this is all the environmental justice stuff. You know that that most environmental impacts we have around the world disproportionately affect people of colour, of low socioeconomic kind of conditions, living in difficult situations. Yeah, and maybe not informed about you know the toxicity of the environments they're in. Um, I mean, we're moving into a new climate justice kind of. Area now where where I think you know the smoke's coming to the cities you know but the, what, the, the but threats. why aren't farmers for example I mean the, the, and that's used to be the party of farmers now they're now the party of sort of regional coal, coal companies it seems but um, why aren't farmers more 
aggressively, you know, why aren't they at the vanguard of the climate change debate? And I mean, if you talk to them individually, and we've seen them, you know, we see them interviewed on TV and so forth, they 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 often are experiencing the material effects of climate change, and they're happy to talk about them. But it doesn't translate into uh, into kind of electoral politics in the normal tax economy. It may not, that but we the, the, the peak body for farmers do actually uh, they are actually quite vocal on this front. There, there is broad agreement across the farming community that climate change I- is real. But if you look on their website, they are very vocal about the effects of climate change. Yeah, and I they're, that. They're, they're but I'm not really talking about that. I'm talking about individuals. I'm talking about so the electorate. The election of Kathy McGowan, the election of Helen Haynes, the the activity and behaviour in the seat of Indi. Um, I worked and lived in Wagga for years and I've got a lot of friends and contacts down there. The politics of climate change has changed significantly in in Wagga and in the Riverina over the last couple of years. There's a tremendous enthusiasm from anecdotally from my contacts in New South Wales uh, about running independence in all sorts of different places, really on a platform so of... So you think that's changing? So now, I, th- I think that is, hmm. is changing. But I, I, think but it's I also clearly think, changing. I mean, this, who yep. is the farmer? I mean, who are we talking about? I mean, these are diverse, yep. small businesses. Sometimes some of them are huge businesses. You know, some of them employ fifty people. These some of the farms we have in Australia are massive businesses. So, so kind of getting a sense of this sort of farming community and representing them in our political system that wants these silos, I think, is really difficult. And that's the challenge we have for groups like you know farmers for climate action and and they're trying to bring that diversity of voice because you know the farmers federation and and their their kind of state counterparts i mean they're all trying to bring different voices and and it's difficult to hear them because we hear specific individuals or we get the national party speaking on behalf of the farmers but actually rural and regional australia is extremely diverse with people who aren't actually just working on the land as well, well. its representation is not extremely diverse that's my point well, that's right. That's that's a that's a that's what these independents are trying yeah. to really. So the open. last federal election, there was a there was an there wasn't the independence that there could have been. And I know again, this is anecdotally, but at least from from my Riverina contacts, that if they'd had a good independent to vote for, they would have. They weren't voting voting for McCormack because they really liked his work. They were voting voting for him because you know there were a lot of other people on the ballot. Um, and so I think that's changing. I think that the next Absolutely. federal election will be really interesting. I mean, yeah, Victoria I mean, is the hot spot. We're being pretty there's, optimistic so here. I mean, so there's a lag. There's a lag. In the politics, yeah, but the you say if there was a good lag. independent, what about if there was a Labor candidate? What about if there was a Greens candidate who was advocating the sorts of policies? That my my yep. point is yep. that show that right there shows you that they're not prepared to step across. It's still quite tribal in terms of the way they look for their representation. I think those steps are incremental. I don't think that takes time. I don't think it's impossible for a Greens person to get elected in the Riverina, but I think that that change would take years. And, yeah, I mean, you, know, you look. You, we don't I mean, you look at Victoria. Look at the the councils in Victoria. Look at the state representatives in Victorian Parliament, and then the federal level. Like, there's some massive shifts happening there, where you've got a lot of young women stepping into local government. Doctors from emergency doctors appalled at the health conditions that people are presenting at emergency, stepping up into becoming, you know, deputy mayors now. I mean, these are, you know, young females who probably wouldn't be the classic sort of councillors in, in rural regional Australia. 
state level the same. You've got, you know, Mildura. So, so this is, this is, um, slow empowerment. People like Kathy McGowan, Helen Haynes, they, they pave a way for other people, particularly women, to say, look, actually, I, I am able to step into this space. Well, let's hope that the empowerment isn't slower than climate change itself. <laughs> Mark, I see you waiting patiently. Yeah. Just, a, I guess a point to move this away from just the rural uh, sort of conversation we've just been having, uh, because there are many climate dis, um, disadvantaged people in cities as well. So if you go to Western Sydney, Western Sydney. Um, they're, they're incredibly, uh, you know, problematically affected both by the heat and the smoke, you know, close to 50 degrees Celsius. Uh, and, and so this is an issue that is not just in the rural areas. Yep, Western Sydney represent my hometown. So let's let's move on to the next question, and it comes from Vanessa. It's for the whole panel, and she says, I'd be interested to hear a discussion about whether we will see real action from the government or just damage control but nothing tangible or useful comes out, and what can or should the average citizen do in this realm to help the country transition from its current stance into something actually productive? That's the big question, isn't it? I it mean, is a very tough question. Look, I, I'll, I'll kick it off just because no one else was. I um, the the question that the coalition now has, as I mentioned before, you know, that it's wrestling with is 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 can it make an adjustment on can it make an adjustment on this uh, on on this sort of climate position that it's already you know very well strongly wedded to, and I think that's actually hard to see. We see some rhetorical shifts. We see Scott Morrison now saying things like, "I've always accepted." The relationship between climate change and weather events. They've I think a lot of people using are, the words climate change. Yeah, I think okay, a lot six of people might ago say, they didn't use the word climate change. They talked about the changing climate. Yeah. Now you actually hear them the phrase those two words that's together. Tr- that's it's quite true. extraordinary. That's true, and I just don't think a lot of people really buy that they've always accepted that, or that he's always accepted it. I mean, he may be able to point to the odd thing you said in the in the background, but there's been in in the past. But they're you know waving around a piece of coal and the whole kind of. Uh, you know, way this uh, argument has been prosecuted by the coalition, the people he's been aligned with, and so forth. It's it's it certainly hasn't looked like a muscular defence of uh, you know um, imaginary visionary climate policy. That said, I do think that um, the, the 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 summer has has changed, has deepened the the the, the sort of community resolve on this question, and I think Morrison, if nothing else. Is able to read that. I think that's one of his strengths. So he may well be looking to find some sort of substantive way of readjusting policy between now and the next election and doing so in a way that is viable for his party room, which is, of course, a puzzle that Malcolm Turnbull could not just could not solve. And we saw what happened to him. Whether Morrison can find a way through it, whether he wants to, I think that's a big question. We see some rhetorical shifts at the moment, but we see the obverse going on with the Nats, which is making it harder. And I also think the elevation of Adam Bant doesn't exactly suggest that the Greens are in the mood for, you know, for compromise either. And I think that's actually quite an interesting point. In fact, I've written about this today, but, uh, the, uh, the, on, on the two wings of Australian politics, the Nats on the right and the Greens on the left, I think there's an argument that just as the community is coming together on this question, the political class is tooling up for more war, and that's pretty uh, pretty disturbing. But look, this is at the federal level, right? I mean, at the state level, it's completely different. I, I agree mean, there, that, there's yeah. a, there's a lot of very pragmatic 
um, premiers that we've had who mm. are really just connected to what's going on. They're listening to the science. They're listening to the communities. I mean, thank God we're in a federation, you know, that we do have – I mean, at times it's difficult and the bushfires show showing how hard that federation is. But thank God we've got this kind of capacity for other – Jurisdictions to demonstrate what's possible. So this this mm. legislate or this from bill both that, parties too. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and this yeah. bill that's yep. been put up by Zali Stegel. I mean, this is sort of modelled, of course, after the UK, but also what they've done in Victoria. I mean, mm. so there's this this incubator idea of federalism is really playing out in Australia, and and possibly, I mean, this is a scenario you could imagine where where the the Liberal Party through its state counterparts starts to just reform. I mean, on this issue. Anyone accept that idea? Or well, do you think it's so I love the optimism. It's yeah, fantastic. The, with the level of entryism that's going on in the Liberal Party, I'm not so sure. I mean, the Christian right seems to be flooding in in all kinds of places. So it doesn't strike me as a particularly uh, reform-oriented uh, organisation. But anyway, I'm happy to uh, be corrected on that. No one? No one? <laughs> <laughs> to, to use the soccer analogy, I think, we, we don't want to score, score an own goal on this by actually aiming for the wrong thing. And so so if there is going to be a response uh, which which is legitimate and moves us into becoming a much more adaptive, you know, climate-adapted Australia, uh, it has to be strategic. It, it can't be knee-jerk type stuff. I think it needs to be um, uh, really well designed in terms of bringing people together uh, so that we can actually have uh, co-designed solutions uh, and we need to uh, revitalize uh, our research and development activity which is and you know, gone through the floor and like it's basically almost disappeared across big slabs of Australia so uh, we're actually not investing in the solutions that we will need in the next decade in terms of plausibility what would the wrong thing look like well, I think if you went down a pathway which really just looked at um, essentially placebo policies, you know, policies that look like you're doing something but actually um, did, had no intention of actually achieving good outcomes, uh, ones which are uh, you know designed to um, just uh, support particular constituencies uh, but not others, um, and ones which were actually were not necessarily done in a, a way that looked at the connections across our economy and society and environment uh, that actually generated co-benefits across those different sectors. So you're calling for leadership rather than politics? That's a maverick <laughs> approach you've got there. Uh, Optimistic too. But an yeah, even worse scenario would be to actually not see the enormous community initiatives that are, that are bubbling up at, at the ground level. So back to the question, you know, what can individuals do? I mean, there's an enormous amount of grassroots efforts to try and just get on and do this stuff, community energy, people stepping into rescue in, in this bushfire crisis situation and I mean a worst case scenario would be a government that would try and control and and even ignore that community effort because at the end of the day these transitions are going to require policies that are going to require behavior change which the government has to legitimize and they have to coerce people actually in our democracy to get people to do things that maybe they wouldn't otherwise do classic public policy instrument you're not going to be able to do that if you've got communities offside. So working with communities, these bottom-up communities, the communities are going to be affected, is actually going to enable governments to roll out large-scale, big reforms. They're not going to be able to get those through, not just parliament, but th through society if they don't start working with communities. 
Well, I mean, like that's been a really engaging discussion. There's actually a number of questions that we haven't been able to get to, uh, obviously, because we're, we're also in, everyone on the planet is invested in this issue, whether they know it or not. But I'm seeing far too many empty glasses at the bar. So why don't we take a break now? Thank you to those who aren't able to stay on for the rest of the discussion. Um, but let's take this chance to recharge our glasses and powder our noses. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right, so let's uh, kick off with the questions again. And uh, this next one, which comes from one of our social media channels, and yeah, it's on national security. Uh, and I'm, I'll quickly go around the table and ask, but um, which world leader would you most and least like to be locked in a bunker with during a national security emergency? Martin, you've been trying to hide from the mic sitting over there. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this question? I Look, I think I, at the risk of deflecting, I think we need some clarification on the nature of this emergency. Mm -hmm. Is it a short-term emergency, for example, that would see me locked in a bunker with Donald Trump for three days because there has been a trade war over tariffs on the importation of fake tan? <laughs> or is it something longer? Is there some kind of zombie apocalypse out there? In which, I'm in which case, I'm going to be in this bunker for a very long time. So, I think I think I need some clarification before I would make a decision. All right, we'll have to get back to our listener on that one, Mark. What are your thoughts? Oh, I'd probably go local and just Indira Dern. Yeah, um, she's pretty cool, huh? <laughs> yeah, she's cool. She's kind. I think she'd be, you know, very relaxing to be with. Yeah, great, Mark. I'm probably going to go Angela Merkel. Oh. Just because I think she's one of the most senior leaders in the world. She's, you know, she's not, she's a conservative, of course, but uh, she also is a progressive in some ways. She's a Christian conservative. She's, so yeah, she is. Uh, she's certainly a very strong pro-European, uh, which I'd count myself among, and I I think she would be really interesting to observe. I mean, that's what I'd be thinking of as a as a sort of a politics watcher, a political journalist, academic now. I would be really interested in watching a world leader handling whatever the crisis was, and I can't think of a better one. I, I you know, it wouldn't be bad watching uh, Macron as well from France, but um, and there's plenty others uh, that you could name, all, all of whom would be interesting from that perspective. But I think while Merkel's still around, she'd be my choice. Mm, Anna Greta. Mm, so the curiosity, uh, certainly, of watching lots of different people in action would be there. But I'm, I'm afraid that my vote goes with New Zealand as well. So yeah, Jacinda. Right. Yep. Okay, you all don't understand what happens yeah. in a national security crisis. I want all the shit leaders in the bunker and I don't want all the competent leaders Ouch. outside dealing with the thing. Yeah, Why would you point. want your national leaders in the bunker? They're supposed to be out there leading the show. So I don't care who they are. I just want all the bad people locked in the bunker. We can throw a grenade in there and we can get all the competent ones out there leading the show. I'd be um, useless as well, which would be why I'd be in the bunker. Getting grenaded, right. <laughs> but you're right. <laughs> okay. It does make you think about what happened at September 11, for example, when you know when they, they evacuated Bush from, I think he was in Florida, they got him into Air Force One yeah. and then they just flew around for, literally 
literally for hours. Yep. Air Force One was not even accompanied by F-18 jets for a while because they couldn't find any to scramble. There was a massive, you know, sort of problem. And in the bunker, Cheney making the decisions. Cheney, a lunatic. Yep. Well, I mean, like some would say that the Bush administration really was the Cheney administration anyway, mm. so I don't know how much difference it would really make. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Now, in our recent episode of Democracy Sausage, Second Serve, we spoke to Rob Manwaring from Flinders University about the task ahead for Britain now that it's officially left the European Union. <laughs> <laughs> With the transition period in place until the end of the year, he points out that there is a significant task ahead for Britain before the deadline. Uh, that includes completing a, a trade agreement with the EU, finding a solution to the Irish border question, and managing calls for independence from Scottish leaders. So this question comes from Nick Lindsay on our Policy Forum Pod Facebook group, and he asks, how significant a task is Brexit compared to other major challenges the UK has faced, such as World War II, maybe the Falklands Islands crisis as well? Uh, is this rated 100%, 50%, 1%? Um, he'd like some perspective, please. Martin, you were grumbling into your scotch over there? I was grumbling. I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly a, a bigger issue than the Falklands War in the sense that Brexit has already absorbed three years of almost the entirety of the public policy mechanism in the UK and will probably absorb it for another decade um, in terms of agreeing those trade deals. So I think in that sense, it's probably bigger than the Falklands War just in, in terms of how long it will take. Right. Do, do you think that the uh, average uh, UK citizen understands why the European Union was formed in the first place? No, is, is, is the short answer. And I think that was one of the big issues that came out of the referendum in the first place. The um, Remain camp really weren't good at selling the benefits of European membership, what it actually meant to be European, why it was a good thing to be European, why it was created in the first place. So I think there is some understanding. I'm, you know, I'm not saying nobody knows that, but uh, certainly there's not broad understanding of what the European Union project was all about. Yeah, I think that's right. Although I do think there's a fairly strong understanding of um, the, the benefit of European unity, of Europe, European cooperation. I think Britons understand that probably better than anyone um, or as well as anyone because they, uh, you know, they were in a war that, that resulted from the uh, internal competition within the European continent. And uh, so I, I think they understand that. The, the, theirs was more a question about whether they needed to be part of that community or whether they could stand uh, separate and sovereign from that, from that community. And I think, you know, you and I, Martin, obviously were of the view that they, you know, completely misread this and that um, they've made a mistake. And I think history will show that to be the case because what lay ahead of them as you say is a whole lot of pain but i would going back to the question i would say that the politics of this in a domestic british sense uh, are largely settled that's not to say that there isn't a lot of political pain to be had in in the details as they work out but we all watched that extraordinary process that went on from the time they surprised everyone really by voting to leave and then all the bloody, you know, nonsense and, and division and, and unproductive stalemate that went on for so long 
for them to get to where they got to. And they finally did decide. They, they, they did make the referendum. I mean, the Tories made the election a referendum on Brexit in a sense. They had, as they had had in, as the Leave campaign had had in the referendum, you know, um, take back control. Dominique Cummings' famous, uh, um, and brilliant political slogan. Uh, they also had then the the slogan that capitalised on the enormous fatigue factor that occurred by the time the election happened uh, at the end of last year, which was um, get Brexit done. And it, it just, it really did work. So I think Britons have, in a sense, resolved this question and it now is a, is a sort of a legal reality. Um, where it goes on from there, I think, you know, remains to be seen. I think there'll be some political pain, but I don't think... In the short term, they're going to be going back. On I'm, their, I'm not sure how accurate direction. this is because I read it on Twitter, but I I have read that if you aggregate the amount of votes for the parties that were against Brexit and you put them against uh, the parties that v- the that were pro Brexit, the 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 stay vote was actually larger. So if you look at it as a referendum and you aggregate the votes. The vote was actually for Remain. It wasn't actually for again. I, I agree with I that. I, I, I think that's probably right, and I think that's akin to arguing that uh, Hillary Clinton won the twenty sixteen yeah. presidential yeah. election. I mean, yep. the sense, the, the simple fact now. is, or that Julia yeah. Gillard, or that you know Tony Abbott won the twenty ten election. Um, the point is that the system works in a particular way. Yep. Everyone's agreed on the rules. Gillard, in that case, was able to. With her minority position, negotiate with the crossbench and former government. Abbott was unable to do so. Uh, you know, Trump got the votes in the places he needed to to get the electoral college votes to get elected. In their system, it's first past the post. It's true that often the aggregate of the people who didn't win in any given constituency, right around the nation, that can also be the case. Uh, the aggregate can be quite significantly bigger than the winning vote in those seats, but. At the end of the day, the Tories, uh, Boris Johnson, won a resounding victory in that election. Uh, we can't, no one can gainsay that because that is the system they've agreed on. I think it's cockamamie, to use an American term. Uh, I think our system is better, and I think our system has some big flaws in it, but I think our system is better. You're talking about compulsory voting. I'm talking about not just compulsory voting, but compulsory preferential, preferential. voting. They don't have preferential voting, and that's the... In sort New of the York, critical they actually difference. did in the most recent election. They trialled it for the first time in the US in in the uh, recent midterm elections. So there is still hope for the US yet when it comes to their voting patterns from an Australian perspective. What's now, left of it? Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> I mean, it's, it's become a sort of a cult. I mean, look at that. Look at that presidential. Look at the Congress vote on on Trump's uh, you know behaviour. The the impeachment, the impeachment. Right. The House votes decisively according to party lines to impeach. The Senate according to party lines. Rick finds his behaviour perfect. I mean, forget about the facts, forget about process, forget about even offering him the protection of rigour in the process. They just... Yeah, except I mean, like, for Mitt Romney. I mean, yeah, give him his credit. I, I, I'm going to make an assumption and suggest that there's probably going to be a whole uh, Ask Policy Forum podcast on Trump and, and the US. As much as we all might get a bit tired of talking about it, it's not going away. And it is, really is a big issue that it hits us all. But you mentioned Dominic Cummings and slogans. Uh, he recently had a fairly interesting doorstep interview where he said, <laughs> the night time is the right time to fight crime. Is he correct? Is the night time the right time? And was it a failure of Dominic to start busting rhymes without a beatbox accompaniment? This is a very good question, Martin. What do you What do you say? I am slightly concerned that as soon as you start talking about crime, you look to me for an answer. <laughs> <laughs> 
I just thought you know about PJ Masks. <laughs> I had to Google what PJ I'm Masks glad you, I'm glad you admit that because I did too. Yeah. It appears to be a superhero comic aimed at children. Is yeah. that correct? But that's typical of this sort of, you know, this is the kind of weird thing about Dominic Cummings, right? He's this brilliant sort of uh, oddly, psychologically oddly constructed person who's socially awkward. It's a technical term for it, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying. I mean, the thing is he doesn't care who he offends. He pushes through. He, he, you know, he got that referendum over the line, no yeah. question about it, right, yeah. uh, in 2016. Is that when it was, 16, 17? Um, and, Has there um, been good personality analysis, do you think, on, on uh, good strategic policy or political advice? Do you think anyone's done personality typing on that? On him? On, no, and that is a broad thing. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, generally, look, there have been a few. It's a good question, actually, because there have been a few uh, sort of, you know, really effective political sort of backroom operators who are like that, yeah. you know, who, are, who, who sort of, you know, I don't know, yeah, I would have thought it, eat it, children's food, watch children's television. Potentially affects particular ends of what's called the spectrum. Yeah, I was yep. trying to avoid that word because I, <laughs> I just think there's a lot of people, I mean, no, you, no, you're, you're, you're medically I'm, qualified, yep, no, I'm not, yep. but um, I was trying to avoid it just simply because I, I suspect it annoys a lot of people. Sure, know. sure. Um, but, yeah, he's uh, he's one weird dude, let's be honest, and uh, he doesn't care who he offends. And like a lot of these people, he's kind of like a big child. Which does remind me, funnily enough, of Donald Trump, who I don't regard as, uh, you know, sort of prodigiously intelligent. I probably would say that about Cummings, even though he's not to my tastes. Uh, Trump, on the other hand, let's face it. I mean, you know, he is a giant orange adolescent, and uh, well, and they've what, what, turned their, and he's turned his party in three years. In three years, he's turned the party yeah. of Eisenhower, of Lincoln, of yeah. Reagan into yeah. a yeah. fucking cult. Yeah. But yeah. to answer to, to answer your question, <laughs> sorry, I got onto Trump. And for yeah, any uh, Mark's putting his soapbox away. While, while Mark's putting his yeah. soapbox away. Sorry. And for anyone listening who may be considering a career in crime, yes, the nighttime is definitely the right time to fight crime. Oh, it's when I do all my crime at night. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah under yeah. the cover of the night. That's right. Now, Mark, this we'll throw this one to you as well, so you can pull your soapbox out again if you'd like. You had years up in the press gallery. Uh, best and worst politician, and why? Who would you least like to be stuck in a conversation with at the midwinter ball? Well, I think Clive Palmer was among the worst uh, politicians, but look, it's actually quite a long list. There's some who politician or someone to chat to at the midwinter ball. I'm, I'm asking. I'm sort of answering this in yeah, two right. hemispheres, okay, really. Yep, I mean, there there have been some lots of bad politicians who've sort of come and gone and almost by definition if you can't remember them that's not a you know the only indicator but it's often the case that that's how bad they are because they're just literally not capable of sort of making an impression on the on the body politic um but in terms of just being shocking at the job i mean clive didn't even roll up there a lot of the time was it ever his intention to actually do the job well i think it's sort of a separate question i think he he didn't sufficiently understand what he was doing i think he wanted and should have been in the senate Funnily enough, there's a little bit of a parallel at the moment because the Greens have just elected Adam Band to be the leader, right? Their leader. They are a Senate-based party overwhelmingly. He's their only lower house House MP. He's, you know, to give him his credit, he's held that seat of Melbourne now since oh, for a long time, and he's he's effective at it, right? But none of the uh, no, the Greens don't get to crack the, the lower house in any other place. They've elected him now as their leader and their, whatever it is, nine senators, I think it is, because it's a party room of ten, sit in the Senate, as is the nature of senators. Uh, And uh, I think that's going to be interesting. Clive had had found himself in the same position. He created this thing called the the PUP, the Palmer United Party, and he had those three complete newbies elected. 
So he had a party room of four, but his three charges who were complete, as I say, complete novices and, and, and therefore needed to sort of learn everything. Uh, they were in the other house and, and in a sense, they, Simply, you know, they became politicians slowly but surely. They, they, they started doing interviews. They started getting admirers and critics and so forth. And they started enjoying themselves and realizing that they weren't there to just be completely dominated by this guy who wasn't even there a lot of the time. He didn't even come to the house of reps many times. So I think he was a pretty bad politician. He tried to back that up. So he, so he lost, he was in the seat of Fairfax. He lost that seat. Um, Predictably, he was a one-term politician, but he tried to buy his way back into the last election. We know he spent, you know, something in mid eighty million dollars, uh, eighty-three million, eighty-four million dollars. I mean, it's completely obscene to me. It buys um, you a lot of dinosaurs. It, right? but, yeah, yeah, it buys you a lot. It buys you a lot of government, right? Except that he didn't win a single seat. But was, he this, was he aimed to win the seat? Or I was do. Aimed I, to I reckon. I reckon if you look at this election and you extract out Clive's eighty million and you extract out. All of those, you know, those sports rorts, all of the vote buying that went on from the government, it wasn't that cl- a, a bigger margin. I, I think the election was a function of, you know, of money talking, frankly, and I think that's uh, that's terrible. So Clive would be someone I would say was a, a terrible politician. There have been lots of it. There was a there was a bunch who were elected. You know, there was the guy who, who, who. Um, I mean. You know, what was he? There was a video of him talking about how to roll shit down a hill and stuff. I mean, you know, there, there was there were there were people there who could not be, uh, you know, who were just not capable of holding down any job, let alone a two hundred thousand year a year job. Um, but what was the second part of the question? Because I've babbled on here a lot. Who would you least like to be uh, stuck with in a conversation at the midwinter ball? Well, I don't think I, I could stand Pauline Hanson for more than a, a couple of seconds. I mean, you know, yep. I've been watching her lately. Uh, what about Malcolm Roberts? Has, has he Malcolm Roberts Pauline would Hansen be Malcolm Roberts would be there, and that Lionhelm character with whom I had some quite public disagreements because uh, I decided to give him Careful. a bit. He's he quite, said you can't. He and Malcolm Roberts both. Yeah, he well, he and Malcolm Roberts said that you can't offend people. That that people who are offended are the ones who choose to be offended. The agency is entirely with them. So I decided to test that out in a, in a uh, column I wrote for the Herald. And he got quite offended. I mean, you know, complete glass jaw. Uh, and, uh, yeah, an objectionable character in so many ways, as we know, is, 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 is vile comments to Sarah Hanson yep. Young. I mean, you know, there have been some pigs in, in the place, frankly, and he was among them. Well, one of the the saddest experiences for me is meeting politicians in real life, and it's not because they <laughs> it's it's not, it's not because they're assholes in real life, but because a lot of them that I've met are actually very different to their per, their public persona. Um, I'm a swing voter, but I actually moved to John Howard's electorate in 2005 so I could literally vote against the guy. Yet I've met him in in public and in professional life many times. He's a, he's a good guy. He will listen to you. He'll give you the time of day. He's not patronising. Um, whereas I've met other people who seem to give you this authenticity and, and personability in front of the camera. You meet them in real life and then they're, they're not nice and they don't give you the time of day. So the level of authenticity I think is what's severely lacking in Australian politics, and unfortunately, that's when that's why when you get hacks like Malcolm Roberts and Pauline Hanson, that they actually get people's votes because people say, well, at least they're saying what they think. They forget that what they think is is a load of crap, 
But they, 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 are, they are attracted to the authenticity. Authentic, that's they right, are, they are. Authentic very, they are authentic. Huh? And, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and it's that authenticity that people are attracted to because everyone's becoming so disillusioned uh, with mainstream politics. Actually, the podcast that uh, we just released today in the National Security Podcast talks with Sam Rogovin about the hollowing out of, uh, of Australian politics. I obviously recommend everyone have a listen to that. All right, now it's, it's time to wrap this conversation up, but let's do it with a final question, and because Martin's starting to fall off his chair here, we need, need to get the poor guy home. Um, what is your favourite podcast, Martin? It's my favourite oh, podcast. Oh, man, this is a big test. I mean, to say democracy sausage at this stage. <laughs> let's let's so- just leave them off the list, okay? Because <laughs> well, let's a- assume that I like democracy sausage and I like policy forum pod and I love, Chris, the national security podcast. Let's just assume that's mm-hmm. true, mm-hmm. if that's true. This is a safe zone, everyone. This is a safe place. <laughs> Speak your mind. Look, I listen to a lot of football podcasts. I listen to a great Crystal Palace podcast called Five Year Plan. <laughs> I'm a big fan of that. Shut up. I can see Angus, the producer, pulling faces at pulling faces at me. But actually, uh, uh, it's, I, it's, it's, five year plan it's a reasonable optimistic. Uh, it's a reasonable time frame. Five years. What, for Win a few relegation. <laughs> no, actually, I'd say my favourite podcast right now, the podcast that I'm listening to at the moment, is a brand new podcast which has been put out by the team who do Romaniacs. It's called The Bunker, and it looks at UK politics, really irreverent, very funny, really enjoyable pod, well worth checking out. All right, Mark, are you a podcast aficionado? No, I'm not. So, But I have occasionally listened to Democracy Sausage, so that probably gets my vote. <laughs> Good for you. It's Mark's next round at the bar. That is. Uh, uh, that that uh, gets my vote as well, actually. Uh, no, uh, uh, Martin mentioned Romaniacs, who he put me on to. And, uh, of course, that was a, a podcast coming out of the UK that uh, was dedicated to, in a sense, fighting the fight against uh, Britain leaving uh, Europe fighting the fight against Brexit, and, you know, they continue on. Um, it's irreverent, it's entertaining, uh, it's it's rich. And so although I've listened to a number of podcasts, particularly over the summer, in terms of the ones I've listened most to, uh, that would be uh, probably up there with my favourites. Although it's a little more more profanity than we've had here. I've done my best here today. You know, <laughs> now that I've got a couple of beers under my yeah, belt, I've yeah. decided to, uh, you know, just loosen the collar a bit. But, um, yeah, I'll go with that. Anna Greta, do you use any particular yeah, podcast to drown out the world? And- I think I'm, I'm a podcast tragic to some degree. Um, and I, so the talking politics that they're from the UK, I've, yeah, that's what I used to survive Brexit. Mm. Um, and yeah, I'll that confess is a good one. I am podcast, taking though. a pause from uh, thinking about that. <laughs> uh, but I, I've, I've yeah, a huge fan of American politics. I really quite enjoy the presidential election. At least up until 2016, and I'm stealing myself for this year. But 5:38 is getting some of my time at the moment, so it's, yeah, a, it's a great, great way to really think about the uh, the dynamics of presidential elections. Great pods. Now, I listen to a lot of podcasts myself, but two that I really like. One is called Malicious Life, and it's a cyber security podcast. The reason why I like it, I'm not a cyber guy. I'm certainly not a tech guy, but this is a podcast that um, talks talks about cyber issues in one, entertaining ways, and also in ways that common folk like myself can really understand. Another one is called The Long Now, and it's it's 
very philosophical. It's There's a lot of uh, futures thinking and a lot of deep thinking in those pods. Uh, I certainly would recommend it to everyone who's listening today. All right, we now have to draw, draw our discussion to a close, unfortunately. So a big thank you to our panel, Mark, Carolyn, Anna Greta, Mark and Martin. Most of all, a big thank you to our listeners who submitted all of these fantastic questions and we are sorry to those that we didn't get to. We might try and roll a few of them over because they are such great questions. Uh, please keep sending the new questions into us. You can reach us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That is A-P-P-S Policy Forum or one word. You can Use the personal touch and drop us an email to podcast at policyforum.net or you can join us on Facebook and we're at Policy Forum Pod there. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to our podcasts, which are Policy Forum Pod, Democracy Sausage, and the National Security Podcast. You can get them on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite podcast platform may be. Give us a review, spread the word, and until next time, Thanks very much for listening. Silkily done. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Well done. Thank you. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.